Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the cold, Lord. Thank you for the cold because it reminds us that we need shelter. We need protection. We need a place to get away from it, Lord, and to find safety and security. Thank you for giving us this place, Lord God. This place where we can be gathered, this place where we can hear your word and be encouraged by it and challenged by it this place where we can have our hearts of stone removed and have a heart of flesh given to us. This place, Lord God, where we can encourage and bless one another and we can be strengthened and built up to go out into this world as agents of transformation and grace. Lord, speak to us this morning. Speak to us this morning through your word, through the the hymns we sing, through the sermon, Lord God, and through your body and your blood in the Eucharist. Reveal yourself to us, Lord, and we pray that you would bring us into a deeper understanding of you, deeper understanding of ourselves, and of one another. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Morning. It is so great to see you all today. Well, you might have heard this expression before. Don't get mad, get even. You obviously have, right? And this very biblical statement... uh, Wait, is it a biblical statement? No, it's not at all. This very human statement that we make, don't get mad, get even, what does it mean? What does it mean? An eye for an eye, yeah, that, that is a biblical statement. Um, so it means that instead of just festering over your anger of what someone has done to you or said to you or cheated you in or whatever it happens to be, Instead of letting that anger eat you up on the inside, you should eat somebody up on the outside, right? Right? You should destroy them so that that doesn't destroy you inside. And that's a good, that's therapeutic, isn't it? Not really? It makes you feel worse? Are you kidding me? Oh, man. This was the whole point of my sermon. I, I, I'm a little disappointed that it doesn't actually work. No, Uh, don't get mad, don't get even is in fact destructive, right? It is what leads us to a situation like the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Where what has happened happened over generations is that just person after person who was loved by each family was hurt or destroyed by that don't get mad, get even principle. That's a hard thing to deny, though, isn't it? I mean, when somebody says something snide to you, what do you want to do? Yeah, you want to double snide them, don't you? Right? You want to come back with something even better, right? Sneakier, snarkier, whatever it is. When somebody cuts you off in traffic, what do you want to do? Ah, don't tell me what you want to do, right? (laughs) I don't really want to know. We have confession coming up later. You can deal with that, you and the Lord. Right? You want to get people back, though. 
But the problem is, that's a destructive cycle that doesn't get us anywhere. And, and a different life is spoken of, a different way of living is spoken of a lot of places in our scripture for today. It seems like Jesus knows that we need to hear something about this theme. I wonder why. I wonder why. Right, the psalm, the Old Testament, and the gospel all deal with this same theme. Now, in our passage from the book of Genesis, which is what we'll be focusing on today, uh, we have the exceptional account of the redeeming relationship between Joseph and his brothers. But before the redemption, there needed to be a breaking. That's just the way redemption works, right? There is no redemption unless there's something that needs to be redeemed. And so let's retrace this relationship to see if we can figure out how this redemption takes place. Now, Joseph, of course, was the favorite son of Jacob, who would later be called Israel, just to make things easy for us. Uh, they always change their names in the scriptures. And as we all remember from the musical, Jacob gave Joseph a what? A technicolor dream coat. That's right. The scriptures, though, of course, say a coat of many colors, right? And this was an outward sign of an inward tension between Joseph and his brothers. His brothers suspected and believed that their father liked Joseph more than the rest of them. And when he got a coat that looked totally different than all the other clothes they got, they knew. They knew. It was an outward and visible sign of what they had already suspected, that Joseph was the favored son. He was different than the rest of them. And the father loved him better. And they were happy for him, right? They said, Joseph, we are so glad Father loves you. We are so happy for you. Enjoy that place of honor in your father's heart. Yeah, no, they were not happy at all. Now, the next thing that, that tipped them onto the unhappiness meter was that Joseph had a dream. Joseph is a dreamer and an interpreter of dreams. That is the gift, one of the gifts that God had given him. And in his dream, he, he dreams this, uh, he has this dream that it is, it represents his brothers and his parents bowing down to him. Remember, Joseph is the little one in this family at the time. And his, all of his siblings are bowing down to him, including his parents. Now, it's one thing to have the dream, but Joseph goes the step further. And what does he do? Tells them about the dream, Right? If your brothers already hate you, you do not want to tell them that you had a dream that they were all bowing down before you, right? And to tell your parents, too. That just rubs them the wrong way. They are fried. They are fried. And so the next chance they get, the brothers decide that they are going to do what you or I or any other reasonable person would do in the same situation. They decide they're going to kill him. Right? But one of the brothers is a little clear-headed. And while he was into the killing plan, he decides, you know, we probably shouldn't kill our brother, which is a good thought to have. And so he convinces them to, instead of killing him outright, throw them, to throw him in a cistern. Now, the other brothers think they're throwing him in the cistern for him to just die. But the one brother said, thinks in his head, I'm going to come back later and I'll get him out of the cistern and be able to return him back to mom and dad. Now, the, the brothers, they throw him in the well 
And then they sit down to eat lunch. Because, you know, this kind of work makes you hungry. Right? You've got to have a sandwich after throwing your brother in a cistern. And as they're eating, they see some tra- traders from Midian uh, heading down to Egypt. And they, decide, they come up with a great thought. They're like, we're being stupid about this. How could we have made this mistake? There is money to be made off of our brother. We should sell him into slavery. Right? That's logical, isn't it? They're finally thinking a little clearer. And so that's what they do. They sell their brother off to these uh, traveling traders, and they take him down to Egypt. Now, in the meantime, as Joseph is trucking down to Egypt, uh, his brothers take his cloak, put some animal blood on it, tear it up a little bit, and then go back to their parents and say, Hey, Mom and Dad, we found this coat in the field. Does it look familiar? And of course it looks familiar, right? And they understand that it's Joseph's cloak and that he is dead. You know, I'm beginning to think these brothers are not the nicest people in the world. I don't know. So there is Joseph. He's now gone down to Egypt, and he gets sold by these traders uh, to a guy named Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Important position, right? Powerful person. And Joseph uh, is there as a slave in his house, and he flourishes. He flourishes. We see this over and over again in Joseph's life. He ends up in a bad predicament, and God causes it to work out okay. God is with Joseph, and he, he, everything he touches turns to gold. He's kind of like Midas there in Egypt. And he, the household is flourishing. Everyone is happy. Things are going great. Until this Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph and tries to seduce him. Joseph, though, tries to run away, right? He's like, I don't want any part of this, and tries to run off. He runs out of her chambers, but as he's running away, what does she grab? His cloak. And in that, like, all he, all he can think is, i got to get away. And so he leaves behind his cloak, runs out naked as a jaybird, and leaves behind this damning piece of evidence. When Potiphar comes home, she tells him that The Hebrew slave that they have, Joseph, has tried to take advantage of her. And what does she have as evidence? The cloak. And what does Joseph have? Not the cloak, right? Not the cloak. And so Potiphar, needless to say, is not happy about this and throws him into jail. They're in jail. He meets a couple of Pharaoh's servants who have been thrown into jail as well. Uh, The chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Now, these two have been, they dream dreams, and they're wondering who can interpret our dreams for us. Enter Joseph. Joseph interprets their dreams and gives them the understanding of what those dreams will mean. And then he tells them, guys, when you get out of this place, remember me. And they say, Joe, we would never forget you. We would never forget you. And so... um, It does happen that both of them are released. One of them is released of his head. The other one is released back into service of Pharaoh. And does he remember Joseph? Eventually. 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 Now, the interpretation of those dreams did come true. And but that one, uh, the cupbearer to the king, 
forgets, totally forgets. About two years later, two years, I've never been in prison, but I imagine two years is a long time in prison, isn't it? I don't hear from people who are in prison. Oh, the time just flew by, right? It was Christmas again. I had no idea. Even so, in prison, Joseph has been blessed by God, right? The head jailer has put Joseph in charge of everything. This probably means Joseph's quality of life in prison is quite a bit better than the other prisoners. And he's kind of running things, and everything that Joseph does is working out because God is with him. God is, God is guiding him. Now, Pharaoh has a dream. And everyone, all the important people, all the big dream interpreters in the, the kingdom are trying to interpret his dream, and they're coming up with zilch. They can't figure out what's going on in this dream. Finally, the chief cupbearer says, Ah, Pharaoh, I am really sorry. I made a promise to this guy in prison, and he interpreted my dream, and I forgot all about him. But if there's anyone who can interpret your dream, it is Joseph. So Pharaoh says, well, bring him on up. So they shave him, get him in new clothes, bring him up to meet Pharaoh to interpret the dream. And the interpretation of the dream is that there will be seven years of plenty, seven years of great bounty in the land, seven years in which the fields all produce, and then seven years of famine. Seven years of famine. And Pharaoh, we presume by the guidance of God, puts Joseph in charge of all these preparations for those seven years of bounty and the seven years of famine. Presumably because no one else has a better insight into what God is going to do. And like all the times before, the Lord is with Joseph and all that he does prospers. And so he builds granaries all over the kingdom. He saves up all this food and socks it away so that it will be ready for the time of famine. And then we come to our passage. Joseph's brothers have come to Egypt because of the famine in Canaan, the land that they're living in. They, along with all the known world, have heard that there is food in Egypt and they are coming to get it because they're hungry. They're out, of, they're out of food. Everywhere else is starving. But Egypt has more than it can use. And so it's, it's selling it to all these other nations. Now here they are, these brothers. You know what kind of people these are, these brothers. Joseph knows what kind of people these are more than anybody else. And here they are standing before him. And Joseph is the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. At his word, he could kill them. At his word, he could have them jailed for the rest of their lives. He could exact his revenge. He could not get mad, but get even. He could do it. He could finally show them who's boss. He could force them to bow before him. Their lives are completely in his hands. But Joseph doesn't do that, does he? No. Instead, he forgives them. He forgives them for abandoning him as a brother. He forgives them for wanting to kill him. 
He forgives them for selling him into slavery and profiting off of that. And remember, that selling into slavery led to him being accused of attempted rape, which led to him being imprisoned for years, but then it ultimately led to his glorification in Egypt and the saving of the known world and his family. Joseph can see how God used the malicious and selfish actions of others to reveal his perfect and holy plan. And so he tells them, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph can see his life as having been lived according to the plan of God. He can see how the good and the bad in his life all work together in the hands of God to lead him to the place that he is at now, where he is a tool of redemption and life for the whole known world. Ultimately, the betrayal of Joseph by his own family has led to salvation for all. Now, I wanted to come up with a good biblical parallel, but I couldn't think of another story in the Bible where somebody's life, betrayal by his friends, trial and punishment led to salvation of all. Can you guys think of something? No? Jesus, of course. Jesus. His life. It's this narrative that drives the entire scriptures. It is this story of Joseph, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that carries this story to conclusion and fulfillment. Because Joseph saved his family and the world for a period of time. But we have ultimate and complete salvation in Jesus Christ. He is the one who was betrayed, turned over into the hands of his enemies, only to have his betrayal result in the salvation of all. And it is his salvation that has drawn us here today. It is his salvation that gives us the ability and the grace to forgive, even when people wound us. It is his salvation that helps us to not get mad nor get even, but rather to turn to him in faith and find forgiveness for ourselves and for others. It is his mercy that saves us, and it is because of his life that we have life as well. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for being the one who offers us salvation, the one who speaks peace into our turbulent and pain-filled lives, Lord. Sometimes circumstances seem to conspire against us, Lord, and we find ourselves in a place of pain, place of isolation, place of loneliness. Lord God, you know what this is. You've experienced it. Joseph knows what this is. He experienced it as well. 
And yet by your grace and mercy, you caused that experience not to be something that turned turned them inward, Lord, and bent them, but rather something that allowed them to be malleable in your hands. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, in the midst of difficulty to find our peace in you, to find our redemption in you, and our hope in you. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your hand always being with us. Like Joseph, you are with us even in in difficult and in wonderful circumstances. And Lord, we ask that you would give us peace, peace in this world, the ability to forgive others, and the ability to find our hope and our life and our identity in you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.